Well, good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. You might be thinking that is not where that question comes from. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that too. Uh, but I want you to open up to Luke chapter 15. It certainly is a pleasure to be here again. Uh, it's a lot better now that uh, my, my wife and third child got to come with me, and I'm thankful uh, for that. But yet again, my other two kids are not with either one of us, but with Bob and Cherry. I'm very grateful uh, for that. We're going to get to Luke chapter 15, but it's going to be a little bit. Do you fear God for nothing? This should uh, be a reminder to us. This comes from Job chapter 1, right? comes from a conversation uh, that Satan and God have, and that's an interesting question that Satan asks God. Does Job fear God for nothing? The word fear, when it's used in connection uh, with God, really isn't as much as being afraid, as much as it is having a reverence uh, for God, serving God. The same word is used in connection with Abraham when he is asked to offer his son Isaac. It says that Abraham feared God. And then there's these blessings that are repeated to him. That question, does Job fear God for nothing? It's a rhetorical one that Satan is asking, implying, as it's stated in the following verses, that Job would not revere, Job would not serve, Job would not fear God if, in fact, God didn't give him anything, if, in fact, God did not build this hedge around him. You know, I think this question fits pretty well for a lot of things in life. Do we do anything for nothing? Like, would you go to work tomorrow just for the fun of it? Would any, would any one of us do something like that? Pro probably not. Uh, no, you're, you're going to expect some sort of paycheck every, every two weeks, which, by the way, is a pretty reasonable expectation. We do things because we expect to get something uh, in return, typically, right? The old adage is, if you're good at something, what? Don't do it for free, right? Now, if, if you can provide a service for someone, it's good that they provide something back for you. I would argue, though, that not only is that business as usual, but I would argue that that's kind of how friends and family work a lot of the time too, right? Like we do something, we kind of expect something to do something back for us. Maybe something good was done to you this morning, and later on in the day, you're really waiting for something good to be back done uh, to you. Maybe it's not, maybe you wouldn't even voice it that way. Maybe it's more, it's just subconsciously, you're expecting something to be good uh, done to you. Maybe you celebrated uh, a birthday, or maybe your wife celebrated a birthday uh, for, for you um, and, and gave you a lot of really good things like a table saw or something like that. And now your wife's birthday is coming up soon and now you got to be thinking about something and she's expecting something good in return, right? Um, yeah, we, we, we typically offer or, or operate that way. I think we also operate that way as far as religion is concerned too, right? At least that's the way the world would operate. The world would encourage you to find a church that suits you best. Hop around from church to church. Go wherever you need to go. Find the one that's going to please your perceived needs, your perceived values the best, and settle down at that one. But then when it doesn't serve those needs, now hop over to another one. Or change religions altogether. By the way, you do you. Do whatever you need to do in order to make yourself feel comfortable. Because if you're going to give something, you should expect something back in return. I think we, we operate this way in a lot of ways. But as I was just doing, pointing the finger at other places. What about us? Do you fear God for nothing? Or let me ask it this way. Are you a Christian for nothing? 
I would, I'm going to suggest this morning that there are, there are five reasons, if I can get this to click over to the next one. I don't know, maybe. Does it need an on? Oh, it's on. On. Hey, look at that. I'm going to suggest that there are five reasons why one might become a Christian. You might be thinking to yourself, there are only four boxes up there. Uh, yeah, I, I know that. Uh, we're going to get to the fifth one. We're going to look at uh, four uh, to begin with. And you may be thinking to yourselves, I can think of a lot of different reasons, but I think a lot of them are kind of filtered under uh, these uh, five reasons. I think one reason why one might become a Christian or one might remain or be a Christian is because we get a lot of good things uh, being a Christian. There's a lot of earthly benefits to following Christ by following the words that he asks us uh, to, to do. We can avoid harmful consequences. I'm going to assume a lot of us here this morning are not in fear of some unwanted pregnancy. I'm going to uh, assume a lot of us here this morning are not in fear of drug or alcohol abuse. If, in fact, we are following what Christ has told us to do. Uh, a lot of us have a lot of really good, healthy relationships because of the fact that we are trying to follow Christ in the way that He asks. Perhaps we can even have economic security because we follow Christ the way that He asks. Because we show up to work on time. Because we turn things in on time. Because we work as unto the Lord, right? And so, we can have this economic security. A lot of people appreciate that and they compensate as well for that. And maybe with that economic security, we can have this peace of mind. Uh, we can have hope. You know. These are all things that Job had, right? I think one might see that as something pretty valuable. That's something that I want in my life, and that's something that I'm going to pursue. You can live a very comfortable life as a Christian. The problem, though, if this is your pursuit in Christianity, is that it fosters this mentality of if I do something good, then I deserve something good to be done back to me. Um, that the whole book of Job is kind of centered around that. that. That's what Job's friends seem to indicate, that good things happen to good people. And Job, bad things happen to bad people. Therefore, you must have done something bad. This theory of retribution, right? And so, you can see the obvious holes in that, right? I mean, look at these things that uh, are, are profitable for Christians. Is that the case for every single Christian? Does every Christian have an abundance of healthy relationships? Well, maybe, but I don't think so. Not everybody. Because you can be doing everything you can do in your power to maintain a good, healthy relationship, giving the things on your end, but the other person on the other side doesn't do anything like that. And so you're left, uh, you're left short. Uh, you can think of economic security. Man, if these last three years have taught us anything, it's that there's not much secure as far as the grand scheme of things, as far as economics are concerned. But think even further than that. It takes just as much effort to be born into a rich family as it does to be born into a poor family. Certain people are given certain different starting points in life, and therefore, there's not going to be a whole lot of economic security, even though there are people who are serving God to the best of their ability. And what about peace of mind? Well, there are people who are struck with illnesses, not because of any decisions that they have made in their life, but that is something that happened to them. That, that's striking. That's difficult. That's going to uh, harm that peace of mind. But that, does that mean that they're less of a Christian as a result of something like that? No. I think, um, I think Saul kind of gives us a pretty good example of this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15 of, of 
serving God for some sort of gain. Saul's story begins pretty well. So Samuel says uh, to Saul in verse 17, he says, when you were little in your own eyes, like you didn't think too much of yourself, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribe of Israel? And did, you, and, and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Saul served God uh, pretty well at, at the beginning. Uh, and he was given the respect from the people in return. However, uh, after some time, that respect that he got from the people was his greatest motivator. And so he was constantly making decisions, trying to please them or what would make them happy the best. Well, soon enough, another guy came along that the people rejoiced over more than Saul. And then you know the rest of Saul's life. The rest of Saul's life is just bitterness and jealousy, and it ends at his own hand. Saul is completely consumed with these good things and making that his God. Now, this isn't to say that we should feel guilty for good things that we have uh, as a Christian. Good things that we have received perhaps because we have made good decisions in our life. After all, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that godliness holds promise to this life and the life to come. There are good things that we can receive uh, being a Christian, and that's a good thing. We should be happy in that. Uh, the Ecclesiastes writer would say to rejoice in these things. Be happy that you have these things. But um, we, we can't allow those things to overtake us. I also don't want to criticize anyone for uh, perhaps you think back when you did become a Christian, you were intrigued by Christianity because you saw some good things that were in other people's life. I think that's a legitimate draw for other people, that our example is something that other people might want to have. But if this is where you ended, if this is your reason for being a Christian, I would argue that you do serve God for something. You actually serve God for the exact same reason that Satan implied that Job served God. Just for the things that you have around us. I think there's another reason why one might uh, be a Christian, and that's just kind of that of habit. Or perhaps uh, to have this security and this sense of identity uh, as being a Christian. Identity is certainly a buzzword these days. That we feel as if Christianity is something that defines us and it is our identity. But our version of Christianity is more this church that we're a part of. Or, or perhaps the, the family that we're a part of. And there's a lot of things that can go in that. Some people here, I would assume, are part of a family that has been a Christian for generations and generations and generations. You can't, you don't even know the great, great, great whatever that wasn't a Christian, right? What a great blessing that is to be able to look back and think of that, that it has been such a part of your family fabric that everyone in town knows how you're going to talk. Everyone in town knows how you're going to dress. Everyone in town knows where you're going to be on Sundays and Wednesdays. Everybody in town knows just because of your last name that they know that this is something that you're going to do. And again, there, there's a lot of security in this. There's a lot of comfort in this. But maybe some of you are the first person in your family to become a Christian. And, but you've been a Christian for so long that just being a part of this church family is everything to you. It means so much to you. I can remember when I became a Christian, finding that church family was such a great blessing for me. That I could be involved with other kids my age, and that felt like family more so than my flesh and blood a lot of the times. And what a great blessing uh, that is for us. And I think it should be considered, and we should count that as one of our blessings. However, if this is your reason for being a Christian, 
Uh, I believe you are a Christian for something. You are serving God for something. And that something is the, the comfortable life, the security that comes with God's family, with being a part of God's family. But is that not part of, of God's design uh, somewhat to, to have the church? Did God not design the church in a way that, that we would be a part of a family, that we could have some peace and security? I don't want to diminish the great blessing that it is. God had a chosen race in the Israelites. And God, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we have been set apart to have that comfort. But if this is your only reason for being a Christian, uh, consider Revelation 2 in the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus is accused of forgetting their first love. Now, they're commended for their great stance on truth, that all these doctrinal issues that would have been uh, moved around and talked about at that time, they are commended for their stand on the truth. But the problem was they kind of forgot the, the whole reason why they were doing that in the first place. The whole reason that it brought them to feel so strongly about that truth. They had forgotten their first love. If we are Christians only out of habit or the sense of identity, a necessary love, whether that love be for our brothers and sisters in Christ or whether that love be for Christ himself, uh, will be lost. I think another reason why one might be a Christian is just kind of out of fear or the pressures uh, that might surround us. Uh, John chapter 9 tells a story about this blind man, uh, this blind man who, who was able to see and his parents are interviewed by the Pharisees. And it's interesting, when you read that interview, they are very selective of what words they use, how they defend themselves in this situation. Why? Because they're afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. If they say something wrong, somehow professing Jesus as the Christ, they're going to be kicked out, and they're afraid of that. Fear is the driving force for them. Then you go a few chapters later, John chapter 12. Now you have the Pharisees themselves, some of them at least, who do believe in Jesus, but they can't tell anybody, out of fear. They were afraid. I think we operate on fear a lot. Fear is, is, a, is a strong motivator in our lives. I think we make decisions out of fear uh, a, a lot. I can certainly remember in, in school, uh, this was quite the motivator for me. Uh, the fear of a bad grade, uh, not as much later on in life, but certainly at the beginning. Um, punishment from a parent or teacher, maybe just Maybe just looking dumb uh, among everyone else in class. That was a motivator to try and study and to try and do well a little bit, right? And so I think fear motivates us. Maybe you can think of that way uh, in, in your job or something like that, that you fear uh, the way other people are going to perceive you if you don't do well. And so it helps you do good things. Fear can be good in that regard. For Christians, uh, I think we do some similar things. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know you all super well. But in a congregation this size, I would assume that there are some people who would call themselves Christians out of, out of fear of their immediate family, if they called themselves anything else. That they're afraid of what other people might say about them, how other people uh, might react to that. And so simply because of that fear, they continue to show up. And they continue to do uh, these certain things that uh, don't draw any red flags or anything like that. I think other people uh, would call themselves Christians out, out of fear of losing, maybe losing a spouse. Uh, maybe losing a girlfriend or boyfriend or something like that. That if they do not profess Christ, 
then that might harm that relationship, might even end that relationship. Maybe some people were even brought into Christ simply so they could have this relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that. There's fear driving that. For some, it might be just the fear of the, the peers around them, like this good peer pressure type thing, that these other kids are doing really good things, or these other adults are participating in these good things. And so, well, I had a fear for looking different than them and maybe not being accepted by them. Well, I'm going to do these good things, too. But for most, I would assume, and I, I'm going to guess that this uh, is perhaps the reason why a lot of you who are Christians this morning uh, came to Christ, uh, it's more the fear of the wrath of God. Right? Uh, that a lot of people are Christians simply because, well, they don't, they don't want to go to hell. And so, therefore, um, they commit their lives to Christ. I think this is a legitimate fear and a legitimate motivator and a legitimate draw for us. One, by the way, that God expected the Israelites to pass down from generation to generation. Paul makes reference to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5, it says that God was not pleased with them. So later on, well, bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Uh, verse 8, some committed sexual sin. So 23,000 people fell. Verse 9, they tempted Christ. They were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, some of them complained. And so they were destroyed by the destroyer. There's a lot of destruction in that passage. But why? Why does he mention all of this? Well, these stories are brought up, as Paul says, for our admonition. These stories of a bunch of people dying are intended to admonish us, are intended to make us straighten up and to perform a little bit better, to serve God a little bit better. So we would do good things. And that's good. We should be motivated by that. I think we use this in parenting, don't we? That we punish our kids for certain things here and there. Uh, maybe they're, they're, they're hitting a, a sibling, taking toys, just general disobedience things. And so we punish them for some reason. Partially because we want them to remember that punishment so that they don't do that thing later on, right? Has that ever happened to any of us? That you remembered uh, whatever mom and dad did before, and so you know not to, not to do that again, right? All right, so fear is a, is a good motivator. However, if fear is your only motivator as a parent, what, what, what type of submission are they going to have later on in life? You understand that that fear needs to mature. As they get older, I'm assuming, as, as they get older, as my kids are only one, three, and six, uh, as they get older, you're going to start to uh, discipline them in a different way. You're going to start to show them that discipline in a different way, hoping that there will be a deeper appreciation for the rules that mom and dad set in, set in place. And consequently hoping that there will be a deeper appreciation for the rules that God has set in place in our lives. Fear is good, but it cannot end there. With this approach to Christianity, this fear approach, do you fear God for nothing? Well, I would say that you fear God just so you won't face the wrath of God or uh, the wrath of, of anyone else. And the problem with applying this approach alone is that the service involved is really motivated by self-preservation more than anything else. Uh, and it's actually, it, it's rather childlike in its approach. If, in fact, it does not mature into something greater. I think another reason would be uh, just because of evidence or logic. That one might become a Christian because this is where all the evidence leads me. I have looked out into the world, Romans 1, chapter 20, that I have observed the things that God has created, and I can see that a God exists. Paul, or excuse me, David writes about this in Psalm chapter 8, that he cannot help but praise God when he looks out at the world and sees the goodness of God. 
Perhaps evidence has brought you to Christianity, that you've studied a lot of different things, that you've looked out into the world, and you feel as though that what the Bible says is the best explanation uh, for the, the origins of the earth. It's the best explanation for the complexity of the eye or the evolution of man. Or maybe you think Christianity is the best answer uh, to life's most difficult problems. That it answers the problem of this longing that each and every person has for love. This longing that each person has for satisfaction. That the Bible gives us the best explanation for that. That you look at the logic and the wisdom of the world, you see it as nothing but circular, as nothing but flawed and insufficient, and therefore you have arrived at the Bible. As was talked about in the Bible class uh, this morning, evidence for the validity of the Scriptures exists. And praise be to God for that. Uh, evidence for the existence of God, the resurrection of Christ, they certainly exist. And the Bible does answer many of life's most difficult questions. However, if this is your reason alone for being a Christian, I would argue that it only satisfies yourself uh, temporarily. Because you are arriving at that conclusion with, with human logic and wisdom. And I think it shows that you're really only a slave to, to science and, and reason. And you may be thinking to yourself, wasn't that a good thing? That I am a reasonable person? That I am one who is trying to be the most logical in every approach that I can do? And I'm trying to find the answers to every single question? Uh, keep your finger in Luke chapter 15. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Because if you think that you can just find all the evidence that you need in order to um, believe in the Bible and believe in every, have an answer for every single question, Ecclesiastes 8 would present a slightly different uh, idea. Ecclesiastes 8, let's look at verse 16. The writer says, When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which has been done on earth, even though one should never sleep day or night. He's searching for this answer everywhere he goes. During the day, during the night, he's trying to find this answer. What does he say? Verse 17. He says, And I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 25. He talks about the, uh, the foolishness of God being wiser than the wisdom of men. There are going to be things in this world that we just simply cannot understand. And if you are trying to find every answer to every little thing, by, pursue these things. That's great. The writer of Ecclesiastes wanted to do that, but his conclusion was there are certain things that are above us. There are certain things that we just simply cannot know. So what then? What do you do with your belief in Christ, with your submission to Him, when you can't answer some of these questions? When there are things that are difficult? When you're reading through uh, the book of Isaiah, perhaps, and there are certain things that just, just totally elude you, and you can't come to a conclusion on something, what do you do in that situation? If your entire dependency is on knowledge and knowing and having certainty on every little thing in this life, then what's going to happen is you're going to be left without answers like the writer in Ecclesiastes. But also, what happens when selfishness starts to creep into your logic 
and reasoning. Does that ever happen? Do you ever find evidence, and even though everybody else sees that it points this direction, you use it to point it in a completely different direction that just so happens to serve yourself in some way? Do scientists operate that way? Do humans in general operate that way? Of course we do. Evidence is to be interpreted. And sometimes we use that interpretation uh, to, to better suit ourselves. History tells us that these things change regularly, and it's not always because facts and evidence point that direction. I think Christianity requires of its followers uh, obedience, belief, and faith. And the problem with the four reasons for being a Christian that I laid out before is that they don't lead to all of these things. As far as obedience is concerned, sure, they, a lot of them lead to obedience. You can have an obedient person uh, who is a Christian for these reasons, right? person who's a Christian for, for gain, I mean, they're going to be obedient so long as they're still getting gain out of it, right? Uh, Job's wife certainly wasn't obedient once these things were taken away. Uh, she wanted you to curse God and die. She moved on once that gain had left. So what are we going to do? Well, it's only going to last just so long as the gifts Last. And what about habit? What about doing things just simply because this is, this is just what we do and I find my identity in that? Well, you're going to do it as long as it's worth it. But also, consider if you are a Christian because it's been in your family for generations and generations, what happens when perhaps the mother and father you put so much faith in, let's say the father um, cheats on the wife and the family splits up, Father goes this direction to his new family. The wife goes this direction. Where are you going to go? That's suddenly been torn apart. Whatever you found your fi foundation in uh, is, is suddenly gone. Or maybe because you there's so much warmth and love in this particular church family that you are a Christian for that reason. Well, what happens if, if, some, if some person comes in and just starts to disrupt that unity and is so divisive that they want to completely ruin everything? And so the church splits. Certain members go this direction, certain members go that direction. What are you going to do? Because now your identity, now your habit is completely changed. If you're a Christian out of fear, it certainly lacks love. You're doing it for that self-preservation. It's also only going to last just so long as the fear lasts. Um, we, my wife and I have some friends who are social workers, and they deal with some pretty difficult stuff uh, in their jobs. Uh, there are certain kids who have been beaten down by their parents so much, doesn't phase them whatsoever anymore. If we are simply trying to drive fear into children, at some point they're not going to be afraid of us anymore, and there is no obedience left. So what happens when you no longer fear death? Uh, for the wrong reasons. What happens when you no longer, when the concept of God isn't as intimidating to you as it once was before? Well... There goes your obedience as well. And as far as evidence is concerned, you're only going to do that just so long as evidence leads you there. If you decide to interpret the evidence one way to another direction, well, there goes the obedience as well. And as far as belief is concerned, uh, it's pretty superficial. It's pretty selfish at best for most of these. And as far as the evidence is concerned, it struck me, it really just seems more like uh, James 2, the, the demons who believed. I don't think that's the way we want people describing our belief, that we have the same belief as, as, as demons. Um, and as far as faith is concerned, I, I saw nothing. Um, I don't think any of these lead to any real faith. 
Because faith implies that you are trusting in something other than yourself. And all of these things are pretty self-serving. Now, I stated before uh, that there are, there are five reasons why one might become a Christian. And I feel like the final reason is personified well in Luke chapter 15. So go ahead and go back over to Luke 15. In Luke 15, there are three different parables that are told. I want to take a look at this last one, the parable of the prodigal son. We're not going to read all of it uh, this morning. But if you're unfamiliar with the story, the story of, of this prodigal son, it, you have this father who has, who has two sons. And the youngest of those two sons knows that his father has built up a lot of wealth and knows that eventually that money is going to come to him and he asks for it in advance. Um, his father decides to give it to him. And so then this son goes out into the world, lives this frivolous lifestyle, spends his money on, on anything and everything. The older son later on in the parable points out that he was spending his money on prostitutes. He wastes all this money. This unfortunate famine strikes. And then he's left with nothing. He's left to serve a man to take after pigs. A Jewish boy, by the way, is left to take after a bunch of pigs. And not only that, but he feels as though the pigs have it better than him, and so he's going to eat what the pigs eat. But I love what it says. It says that he came to his senses. He came to his senses, and so he decided to leave this world, uh, this, this area that he was in. He decided to go back to his father. But not so that he could have the same position as before. He decided to go back to his father so he could be a slave. He saw it better to be a slave to his father than to be a free man in this other world. And so he returns to his father, and the father runs out to greet him. Uh, the son begs for forgiveness. The father gives it to him. He kisses him. He throws a party for him. And then the older son comes along. The older son refuses to attend this party. He's angry at the father. He's jealous of the celebration that is given uh, to this uh, younger son. And the father pleads that the older son would come to the party, but he says this is something that we had to do because he was lost and now he's found. And that is worthy of celebration. What I want to look at, the fifth reason why one might become a Christian, is because of God and because of who he is. In Luke chapter 15, I think the Father is intended to be God. I, I, I think that's a fair assumption here. And I'm going to take a closer look at the Father in this parable. If you look at verse 12, uh, when the younger son asks for his inheritance, what does the, how does the Father respond? What does he say to the son? Well, there's no argument from him, is there? Here at this time, it would have been expected that a son would serve his father... All of his days. And the inheritance was not due the son until his father died. So what is the son saying here? One, hey dad, give me your money that's actually my money. And two, you might as well be dead to me. I would like my money now. And then what does the father say to that? Nothing. He allows the son to use his own free will to go out and live the life that he wants to live. With, by the way, all of these blessings that was the father's to give. But then when the younger son returns in verse 20, you don't see the father waiting on the front porch, just tapping his fingers, 
Waiting on, the sun to, waiting on the sun to come in. No, you see the father running out to him. But even when he runs out to him, you don't see him with this long lecture to give to this son. Nor do you see him giving out a list of demands. Here's all the things that you're going to have to do in order to get in my good graces again. Now, he doesn't do anything like that. Jesus states that the father felt compassion for him. The son who pridefully and shamefully demanded his wealth is now being showered with expensive things. He is being given uh, clothes, expensive clothes, expensive jewelry. He's given the best food in the middle of a famine, by the way, assuming it hurt where they are too. The father simply holds nothing back. He is ready to give to this lost but now found son. We are Christians because God is good, because He has done the same for us. I want you to consider these great things that we have in being a Christian. God has provided us many blessings, much gain in our lives. The things that are good in this life that we are able to partake in, they exist not because we have done so many good things. They exist because God has given it to us despite all the terrible things that we have done. In the security and the stability and the identity that we can have is something that is given by God. And it's far better than any type of earthly security that we can have. God has given that to us. And God has removed fears in this life. He has removed these fears because of the promise of life to come that He has given each and every one of us. And God has left evidence for us to understand. God has left evidence so that we could better understand the world, but He has also proven Himself worthy of trust when there are certain things that we cannot understand. God has proven that through His love, through His power, and through His compassion with us. But at the end of this story, there's a party. Uh, And if I were to give you a blind resume of of all the things that the younger son had done and all the things that the older son had done in their lives, and I were to give you like March Madness style, the blind resume, who's the party for? You would assume it's for the older son, right? He's the one who had stuck around and has served his father. But in fact, it's actually the older son who's the only one who doesn't attend. He doesn't show up to this party. I want to go ahead and read Luke 15, beginning of verse 27. Verse 27, And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the brother, became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat. So that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. The older brother is bitter and angry and he's unwilling to come to the father because he has served or he has feared his father for a price. He has feared his father for something 
in return. And if you'll allow me to speculate a little bit as to the, what's going on in the older brother's mind. Maybe you could say that he served his father because he enjoyed the house that he lived in. He really enjoyed the food that he was able to eat, the standard of living that he had, the gain that was given to him in serving his father, and therefore he continued to work in his father's field. Or you could, maybe you could say that the, that the son very much loved and was, was content uh, in the stability that his family provided. That every single day he can count on the food that's going to be there. Every single day he can count on his father being there. He knows there is there's security in this family, in this culture that he's a part of. Or you could say he was just too afraid to test the waters anywhere else. That he was afraid what the father was going to say. He was afraid what maybe the society was going to say around him. And so he served his father for that reason. Or maybe you could say that all the evidence around him pointed to, well, this is going to be the best for your life, so I ought to stay here with the Father. For the older brother, there was no love. There was no faith. There was just fruitless obedience. Is that us? Can we be described in the same way? That we do not have love, we do not have faith. We just have fruitless obedience. His fear came with a price. An amount that he felt had been given to somebody else. And we can only imply that this older brother, like the rich young ruler, walked away sorrowfully. I like the way that um, Timothy Keller puts it in his book, uh, The Prodigal God. He says, it's only when you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord, lying beneath both your sin and your moral goodness, that you are on the verge of understanding the gospel and becoming a Christian. I think we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are good enough. That we can save ourselves through all of these good deeds that we can do. But we must recognize that it's that desire to be our own savior or even be our own master that might motivate some good things that we do. But they also certainly motivate sin in our lives as well. Do you serve God for nothing or do you serve God for a price? Because the fact is that God did pay a price for us. He has killed the fatted calf for each and every one of us. I like the way it's put here in this book called On Loving God. It says, God is not merely the bounteous bestower of my life, the generous provider of all my needs, the pitiful consoler of all my sorrows, the wise guide of my course. But that He is far more than that. He saves me with an abundant deliverance. He is my eternal preserver, the portion of my inheritance. Hebrews 9 and verse 12 puts it this way, not with blood of goats and calves, but with the blood, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The greatest thing that God has given each and every one of us is an abundant deliverance. And that abundant deliverance comes through our Lord Jesus, who died on the cross for us. In Philippians 2, Paul says that every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bow. 
And he says that every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. But why? Why is every single knee going to bow and every single tongue going to confess? Well, in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, I think it's because of what Paul states right here. It says, Let this mind be in, your, in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We are Christians because of the great God that we serve. The great God who came, humbled himself, took on the form of a man, and became obedient to the point of death. At some point in our lives, we have been both the younger uh, and the older brother. Uh, the younger brother, when we have sinned greatly and we are in, in need of God's forgiveness and His restoration. And the older, when we have not shown the proper appreciation for God and the proper thankful attitude for the great things that He has given us and the proper reverence for the restoration that He has provided each and every one of us. However... My encouragement for you this morning is to be more like that younger son. To be the younger son who realizes that it is better to be a slave to God than a free man in this world. Who recognized his sin, but recognized the goodness of the Father, and he showed that appreciation through his repentance and through his obedience. If you are not a Christian this morning, I ask that, that you would consider that. That you would consider the great blessings that come with being a part of God's family. The comfort that comes with being a part of a church family. The hope and the removal of fears in this life that God has provided each and every one of us through the life to come. And the truth that lies in, in His Word. The truth that lies in the physical and logical evidence that God has provided us. But more than that, I hope that you will see God for who He is. I hope that you will see God as the one who has provided us for all of these blessings. And the one who has spent the entire Bible trying to explain how you can restore that relationship back with them. And I hope that in this life you will confess Jesus because you recognize that he gave up his life for you. And you will confess his name before the end. If you have any need of this invitation, I invite you now to come up while we stand and while we sing.